Welcome back into the Original Gangsters podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Scott Bernstein, with my very, very esteemed co-host, the doctor himself, Jimmy Bucciolato. Hello. And uh, well, I'm very excited about this episode. We have a very uh, distinguished underworld figure that is going to be joining us. His name is uh, Robert Luisi, was known as Boston Bob, and just the guy lived a movie script. Fascinating life that crossed many boundaries in terms of different crime families, different mob units around the country. This guy's done it all. He's seen it all. Been through multiple mob wars, and he's still standing. And and now he's turned his life around. He's not just the story's not just interesting. It's not just intriguing, but it's inspiring. Guy's turned his life around. He's a pastor. His book is called From Capo to Christian. And he's back in his old neighborhood now in, um, in Boston and, in, and is spreading the gospel, trying to make sure that uh, the youngins uh, stay off drugs, stay away from organized crime, and, and, and stay on the right path. So we want to welcome in Boston Bob Luisi. Thank you for joining us here on the Original Gangsters Podcast. Oh, thank you for having me today, Scott. No, nice uh, to your reputation precedes you. You've done some amazing interviews this last year. I know you got a, a YouTube show that you're doing yourself, the Robert Luisi Show. Yeah, the Bobby Luisi Show on YouTube. Yep. And then you got a book, and I know you're working on some other projects. We'll, we'll give you a chance to plug. But just to give a quick primer, and then we'll jump into it. So Bob came up in the patriarchal crime family, which is the mafia organization that controls the New England region of America. And then at some point in the mid-'90s, he transferred families from the patriarchal family in Boston to the Bruno Scarfo family in Philadelphia. And the Bruno Scarfo family uh, controls Philadelphia as well as North Jersey on Atlantic South City. South Jersey. South Jersey, I'm sorry. They have a North Jersey crew, though. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, so Bob was uh, a part of two different crime families in his career in the underworld, which is very unique. So why don't we kind of just start from the beginning, Bob? I know you had a family that uh, had a history in, in organized crime in the North End, which is Boston's Little Italy. So why don't you kind of just start from the beginning about uh, your childhood and being exposed to the life of a wise guy and then, you know, becoming one? Well, yeah, let's go back a little ways. Uh, I was about 11 years old, and I started working for the Ajulo family. Now, the Ajulo family actually ran the Boston faction of LCN. Right. Under Raymond Petriaca. Petriaca family uh, extended from Connecticut to Rhode Island all the way up to Maine. Right. Boston. And uh, Jerry and Julio owned the big vending company. And at that time, uh, Ronnie Romanowski was the front guy who owned vending. And uh, 11 years old, I started working for them. For the vending machine and, company? Uh, my whole, for the vending machine company, for my own vending. I used to go out on uh, Saturday mornings and uh, roll the dime machines with Ronnie. And, uh, you know, we had the jukeboxes, the cigarette machines, food tables, everything pinball machines, and uh, my whole life, really, I grew up around these guys. My father, from a young age, uh, was with the Patriarca family, the Boston faction, and, uh, you know, he did a lot for them uh, in his youth, and uh, my father was a tough guy, a loyal guy, nice guy, you know. They really liked my father, and uh, because of that, I grew up around all these made guys, these top regimes, bosses. And uh, at that time, I knew everybody up in Boston so, since I was a kid, really. And uh, it was just something that uh, I was brought up in. It was all around me in every neighborhood, you know. Uh, the North End was an Italian neighborhood, Little Italy, obviously. Uh, East Boston was uh, probably Italian and Irish. And those are the two neighborhoods I grew up with and around the influence of the wise guys, really for most of my youth. So the Patriarcha family is named after Raymond Patriarcha, who was the, the longtime godfather of New England. Now, he was stationed in Providence, Rhode Island. I'll tell you a little history. Yep. Uh, Raymond was uh, from the Worcester area, which is central Massachusetts. Uh, Raymond took over the family in the 50s. Right. When he did that, he stationed himself in Rhode Island. He moved down to, uh, that area, and he started patrolling the family from Rhode Island. And the Angelo brothers became his lieutenants in Boston. They really had autonomous authority in Boston. So those are the guys that you were working for. Right. Jerry Angelo was the underboss of the Patriarca family. 
You need to call the Boston area for Raymond. Right. So the Ajulo family, uh, his brothers were made, Danny, a few of his brothers. And uh, I'll tell you, Jerry ran it up there with an iron fist, you know. And uh, But there was no mistaking that Raymond was the boss. But uh, Jerry had the club in Boston. Jerry was the boss of Boston at the time, all the way up until the 80s. Let me ask you something, uh, Bob or, or Scott. Um, a similar thing like that in Detroit, like the Toco and Jackaloni factions don't really interact very often. Was that was that a thing like the Rhode Island Patriarca guys and the Angelo Boston guys? Did they not interact socially very often? Was it just sort of a business arrangement? No, I mean, it was one family, you know, but the Boston guys did their, their, their thing and the Rhode Island guys, and it's like separate factions of the same family. And no, they were always working together. Was your dad ever traveling to Providence to, you know, get FaceTime with Patriarca? I don't believe so. I really don't. He stood more local, I believe. Okay. I'm not saying he never was in Raymond's company or met Raymond, but he was uh, not that guy in that faction up there. So just do me a favor for, for the audience. Describe, kind of break down the type of mob guy that Raymond Patriarca was compared to the type of mob leader that Jerry Andula was. Well, Raymond Patriarca was tied in very deeply with New York, Genevieve's family, and the bosses there. Uh, Raymond uh, also sat on the uh, commission when it was formed. Uh, he was very powerful. Raymond also had a piece of the Tropicana, I remember when I was a kid in Las Vegas, because we had done something for somebody, and they sent us down there. We got a little vacation out of it. Uh, Raymond was very, very, very powerful guy, you know. Now, you got to remember, the big families in New York, the Genovese, the Gambino family, and the other rest of the five families over there were bigger than the families that were, you know, around the rest of the country. But uh, Raymond himself was uh, very powerful and well respected among them. So the two guys we're talking about right now, Angelo, who ran Boston, and Patriarca, that ran Providence, but oversaw the entire uh, New England organized crime faction, w would it be accurate to, to call them both kind of stoic? They weren't flashy. They weren't... Uh, you know, seeking headlines. And that is in contrast to a couple of guys that we're going to mention soon that were leaders of, of mob groups that you were a part of later in your life. No, uh, Raymond uh, and Jerry were low-key guys. They were real mob guys. You know, they didn't want the paper. They didn't want the publicity. They were the real deal, those guys. And you would say also that I think it's that's intriguing. They lived pretty modestly. These weren't guys that were living in like, you know, the Godfather-esque compound that you see in the movies. I mean, Raymond Patriarca lived, uh, I, you know, in Federal Hill, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. Jerry Angelo had a little, had a little social club office that I believe they called the, the dog house. Yeah. On Prince Street. Yeah. In, yes, North, in the North End and on Prince Street. So it wasn't like these guys were, were really living that large in terms of, uh, perception. Well, no, Jerry, uh, they were living outside in the neighborhoods. Jerry and Julia had a beautiful home in the Hunt. His brothers lived in Metford, which I lived there at one time myself. Beautiful area. You know, I mean, uh, but as far as uh, the clothes, the cars, no, they were more low-key. They were more low-key guys. What you expect from that era. So just talk about uh, growing up in that era and then, you know, learning from your dad, learning from guys like the Angelo brothers and, and kind of coming into your own as, as a racketeer. Well, let me tell you how it was set up. In the North End of my neighborhood, uh, Jerry Angelo was on Prince Street and he had his couples and soldiers. Uh, Larry Bioni had a crew on Hanover Street. Uh, Pauline Pizzo, Sandy Granito. There were a few couples in the neighborhood. I was mostly around... Uh, Larry Bioni's crew. Uh, I was friends with a lot of the guys, don't get me wrong, but I never really spent time around Jerry himself. I was on uh, Rafi Chong on Matina, Johnny Chicotti, and these guys were shop guys. They dressed every day. They came in the neighborhood. They owned businesses. And uh, I felt when I was like 15, 16, that they were kind of like grooming me, you know? And I'm glad that I grew up around these guys because... Like I said, they try to be low-key. You know, they're from the old regime, the old faction. Uh, 
it's not like uh, how it is today, obviously, you know. And uh, they were the men that, of honor and respect that you would believe that they were. It was supposed to be. You mentioned a, um, a figure that I'm, that I'm interested in. I just want to digress for a second. You mentioned Ralphie Chong. Um, so yeah. there, was, there were two brothers, La Matina brothers, right? Ralphie Chong and Joe Chong? Yeah. Or Joe Black. Sorry, they called and him Joe, Joe Black. Black. Right, right. Joe, Joe Black, yeah. They called Ralphie Chong his nickname because he kind of had, he, he looked Asian? No, we had ties to Chinatown. He's on the street from the neighborhood. Okay. And I, I believe Ralphie had a lot of ties with him. So I think that's how we got the nickname. Who would you say was the most colorful uh, figure of that era in, in the North End, out of all those guys you mentioned? The most colorful? That's a good question. I don't know. I think Larry Bioni had the prestige. He was a real couple, you know? He says Larry uh, Bioni. They also called him Larry Zanino. He was kind of like... Zanino, yes. Right. Uh, for people that are listening in Detroit, Larry Zanino was like a Tony Giacalone. Uh Raymond Patriarca was like uh, Jack Toco. And then, you know, uh, Jerry Angelo and uh, Zanino. Larry Zanino were like Billy and Tony Giacalone. They, they were running the streets. They were the guys that uh, yeah. when Raymond Patriarca uh, barked, uh, Jerry Angelo and, and Larry Zanino bit. So are we talking like oh, 1970s yeah. now? Or? 70s, 80s, 60s, 70s, 80s. By so, the mid-80s, uh, Angelo was in prison, and then Zanino went to prison in 87, and that's when the war broke out. So how, how aware were you, Bob? As you're coming up a young man, you're around these guys. Did you ever have to interact with any of the Irish guys in, like, Southie or Charlestown, like the Irish gangsters? Oh, well, I did, yeah, when I came up later on, yeah, in the 90s. So that brings us into the Whitey Bulger era. I'm sure um, for, for even novices of, of, this, uh, of this space of, of true crime, uh, I'm sure most of our listeners know who uh, James Whitey Bulger was. Uh, the Irish crime lord, the Irish mob boss of Boston from the 70s and uh, until the 90s. Then he went on the run and was uh, yeah. number two on the FBI's most wanted list behind Osama bin Laden. And then they caught Osama, uh, Osama bin Laden, I want to say in May of 2011. And within a couple weeks of catching Osama bin Laden, um, Whitey Bulger was caught because the, the, all of the, the, the kind of the hands-on deck mentality from from law enforcement and the u.s marshals uh you know kind of transition from trying to get uh osama bin laden to trying to get whitey bulger and that, i think that kind of speaks to yeah. what a uh, uh a dangerous figure whitey bulger was but what people might not know is that there was a working relationship between the boston irish mob and the boston italian mob um it, it sometimes the the relationship was strained. Sometimes it was strong. Um, kind of talk about the the yin and yang of having Bulger and that whole Winter Hill crew in uh, in Southie or in uh, Somerville, and then how it worked, how they worked with the uh, with the Italians in the North End. Well, listen, how we went this Whitey Bulger. You have to understand that they were with the Italians. Uh, Johnny Monarano was in that crew. Uh, his brother Jimmy was a May guy. Uh, Frankie Salami was around them for years. And they were all around uh, Larry Bioni. Uh, everybody believes that these guys were just running off on their own. And that's really not true. What uh, Whitey Bulger did, uh, being in a farming, he pulled down a lot of the uh, uh, May guys in the Boston area, especially Jerry when they broke the doghouse. I, I left that out of what my. I said I left that out of my description of Whitey Bulger in my uh, preamble. Yes, he was probably the most famous minor oversight. Yeah, probably the most famous FBI informant yeah. ever, um, and he was depicted in in two different movies uh, in the last twenty years: the The Departed, starring Jack Nicholson as a character based on Bulger, and then in the movie Black Mass with Johnny uh, Depp playing right. uh, Whitey Bulger. Did you Did you watch those movies, Bob? Did you see the The Departed? Yeah. Yeah, are, I watched them. What are I your thoughts them. on those? Well, you have to understand something, how I feel about it. You know, Whitey Bulger was a dangerous, devious guy. Don't get me wrong. I'll take nothing away from him. Very dangerous, him and his crew. But he only had a small crew. He was in South Boston. He's not the boss that people made him out to be. You understand? His fame came from 
his connection with Connolly, an FBI agent, and what he did against the Italian mob. Why did he, even till the end, before he took off with uh, Stevie uh, Flammy and Frank Salami, why did he and Stevie were with Frank? The people think that they were just running out there on their own and doing everything. What Whitey really was doing on his own was informing on everybody. Now, I think you know, in 1989, there was an initiation in Boston that got taped. That was the first one in the country. Um, And what happened there, uh, Sonny Mercurial, who was a May guy, uh, they showed him where the meeting was going to be. I'll be announced to all my friends, these gangsters, Stevie Fleming and Whitey Bulger had flipped him for the FBI. And when the meeting was coming, the ceremony, to make a few guys up there, Sonny tipped them off, uh, told the FBI where it was going to be, and that's how that meeting got taped. It was a, a historical, yeah, it was, it was a very historically significant event in uh, law, law enforcement history. The first time a, a, a making ceremony, an induction ceremony into La Cosa Nostra was recorded, it was in October of, of 1989. And I just want to give a little bit more context to what Bob's talking about, and then I want Bob to, to, to come in here and, and color it up for us and, and give us a deep dive. So what Bob was alluding to was the fact that part of the informant game that Woody Bulger was playing with the FBI was informing against his enemies to remove them from the picture on the street. And then in the case of the Italians, uh, Angelo and Zanino, who got taken off the street based on uh, information provided by Whitey, he was then able to kind of slide his own guy in uh, Larry, um, into, the, into place at the top of the New England Mafia in Frank Salemi, Cadillac Frank, uh, who was a very flashy, uh, very in-your-face, 1980s-style gangster who had been in prison for 20 years, uh, comes out of prison and has his eyes on becoming the boss, uh, aligns with Raymond Patriarca's son. Patriarca had died uh, of a heart attack in 84. His son, Raymond Jr., took over. Raymond Jr. was not a very strong leader, was not very respected, um, and he needed a Frank Salemi to kind of keep power. Um, So... Salemi has Bulger and, and that whole Winter Hill crew backing him up uh, and eliminating guys on the street to enhance Salemi's uh, prestige factor and power factor in the pecking order um, in the underworld there. Then in the summer of 1989, a war breaks out uh, where the Boston guys uh, stage an attack on the Providence guys. And although Cadillac Frank Salemi was born in Boston or born in the Boston area, he was aligned with the Patriarcha faction in Providence and was kind of their their liaison, if you will, to Boston. And the Boston guys, led by guys like uh, J.R. Russo and Vinnie Ferrara, uh, didn't take kindly to taking orders from Salemi or Salemi trying to give them orders. So they tried to kill Salemi. He survived an assassination attempt at an international house of pancakes. Uh, I believe he was shot seven or eight times. The same day, they killed Patriarcha Jr.'s underboss, Billy Grasso. Uh, so the flames of war are, are burning very hot in the summer of 89. At some point around Labor Day, there is a, uh, a wedding reception in Long Island where John Gotti, who was the boss of the Gambino crime family, is present. And there is some type of meeting that takes place between Gotti and J.R. Russo, who was the leader of that North and East Boston faction. And Gotti convinces them to stand down. And the war, for uh, at least temporarily, uh, goes idle. And they agree to have a making ceremony as a way of making peace. Um, and as right. Bob mentioned, Angelo Sonny Mercurio, who was a, uh, was he a capo? Uh, no, I think he was just a soldier. A soldier in the Boston crime family um, had flipped and fed information to the FBI where this making ceremony was going to be. But let's just, I'm going to turn it over back to Bob now. Bob was in the middle of all of this. Bob and his family were aligned with Frank Salemi uh, and that crew. Um, so 
it was a very tumultuous time. Talk about what was going on in 89, 90 uh, in Boston and, and your role and your, and, your, and your family's role in it. Well, uh, you know, my father's relationship went back with Frankie for years. I guess, you know, he was friends with him. Uh, what happened, uh, Vinny uh, Ferraro and Joe Russo, that whole crew got picked up. And when that happened, the streets were wide open. You know, Frankie uh, stepped right in um, with the blessing from New York, as far as I know, from John Gotti, and uh, he took the family over. Uh, but there was still a lot of people that uh, resisted that move. He didn't have the um, support of everybody out there. His faction uh, wasn't that popular. He had a lot of Irish guys around him. He was, he was half Irish. Yeah, Frankie was, yeah, yeah. Cadillac, well, let me tell Cadillac, you, the Frank. Irish guys in Boston, yeah, Cadillac Frank, the Irish guys in Boston, uh, they've got guys up there. you got a lot of good guys, Irish guys up there. And, uh, yeah, he had a lot of Irish loyal to him. Didn't that also kind of help push the narrative that he was an interloper, that he was a carpetbagger? Like, even though he was a Boston guy, he'd been in prison for 20 years, he comes back, and all of a sudden he surrounds himself by all these, uh, with all these young Irish kids. Uh, I think it kind of fed into this, um, this, ac- this acrimonious situation where you had a lot of Boston guys that didn't want him around. And then he starts surrounding himself by non-Ita- with non-Italians. It seemed like it, it only, uh, you know, upped the temperature in the situation. Well, let me, let me explain how this all works. So you can understand it a little better. Please. You know, I, I had a I had a big crew in Charlestown. Good guys over there, you know. Uh, they had some control with South Boston, and Frankie did, and don't get me wrong. But East Boston, they're not then method some of all these areas uh, were controlled by other people. Frankie was just moving his way in on that, and people weren't happy about that. Um, Frankie to me was never a legitimate boss. What happened was when Joe and Vinny went away, I had come back from, uh, I was living on Martha's Vineyard, building houses down there. And I came back in 1990. And like I said, the streets were wide open. And I hooked up with some of my friends that were with Frankie. And my father was with Frankie. And Frankie Jr. at that time was still alive. He was running around in the North End in the neighborhoods. And, uh, I, you know, I met Frankie. I knew Jackie Salami. You know, I liked him. Uh, he had the power at the time. And, you know, I decided to hook up with them. But there was a lot of people that weren't uh, happy with that. Well, give me your um, analysis of uh, Cadillac Frank as a boss and as a wise guy. You just said you didn't think he was a legitimate boss. But, t- you know, tell people why and, and tell people what, what his personality was like. Because uh, as I had foreshadowed a couple minutes ago when we were talking about Angelo and Patriarca, uh, just a completely cut from a different cloth, uh, Cadillac Frank Salemi and then Skinny Joey Merlino, who we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, these were two guys that you were around and kind of later in your, in your uh, mob life, and they were really the polar opposite of kind of the old school guys that you had grown up around. Well, listen, I, I got to be honest with you. I was at Frank's company a few times. Uh, I wasn't around him much. Uh, as time went on, I was more around uh, his brother Jackie. Uh... I don't think Frank was as flamboyant as uh, some of these other people that are out there. But um, like I said, Frank really never had a chance to be the boss. Frank wasn't respected as the boss. People looked at Frank as a usurper. You know, we got uh, Joe Russo, uh, Vinnie Ferraro. I mean, these guys were running the area. And the last thing they wanted to listen, like you said earlier, was listen to Frank, you know? And, uh, so Frank's faction wasn't well respected in uh, the deep neighborhoods in the North End, East Boston, Riviera. So Frank had a hard time. Then there becomes a situation where, where Cadillac Frank gets in to the boss's chair, and instead of kind of saying, let, let's, buy, let, let, let's let bygones be bygones, and, you know, bury the hatchet with the other faction, from what, you know, from my research, he spent the majority of his five years on top just seeking revenge on anyone that he thought did him wrong back in 89, 90. And there was probably, you know, half a dozen or more bodies that dropped uh, simply because he wanted to avenge disloyalty that, that he viewed from, you know, years previous. So he, the, the instability factor only kind of 
increased as, as opposed to, you know, tamping down? Well, you know, if you go back and, and you read about everything and see what happened back there in the 90s, um, there weren't that many May guys that were killed in Boston, my friend. You know, uh, Frank, yeah, he took out some revenge on some people. He did. I agree with that. I think at one point, though, Frank wanted to uh, uh, make amends and uh, solidify his position. But he never got the chance to do that. Um, like I said, I never, th- I never thought that Frank should be there. He should have never had that position. There were all the guys there that could have filled that seat besides him. You know. Did anyone have an issue with the fact that Cadillac Frank was not 100% Italiano? My understanding is that he was part Irish. He's half Irish. Was that an issue for anyone? Like the old school Cosa Nostra guys? Well, that might have been for them, but most of them were gone (laughs) by the 90s. So, you know, that didn't make too much of a difference. Okay. Uh, We made a guy in my crew that was half Irish. His father was Italian. Um... I don't see the problem with the American Mafia now. Uh, if there is some type of mixture, I believe as long as your father's Italian, you go up in the neighborhoods, people knew you, I think it's okay. Did other guys resent that? I'm sure they did. You know? Old Man Patriarcha would not make Cadillac Frank. Uh, and Cadillac Frank had... Absolutely not. Right. He had grown up uh, do, doing muscle work for the boss, Raymond Patriarca in Providence. He was very close to Larry Bayoni, a.k.a. Larry Zanino, in the North End. Um, and he was putting in yeah. some serious work back in the 60s. And despite that, Old Man Patriarca would not open the books for him. So he had to wait until he got out of prison. Uh, and Patriarca Jr. was in a, kind of in desperation mode to, to protect himself and, and, and put... And put uh, Frank in, kind of in front of him to uh, as muscle, so so he made him uh, a couple yeah. months after he got out of prison. He wanted Frank to be the liaison between Boston and Rhode Island. See, after Raymond Senior passed away, Rhode Island really didn't have the club of the power to be over Boston anymore. You understand that? Yeah. That Boston faction was more powerful, and the Boston faction did not want Rhode Island to be running the family anymore. They wanted the power shift to come to Boston. So let's go to um, 1995, and Frank Salemi is indicted, and Whitey Bulger is indicted, and they're both off the streets. And I know this is a sensitive subject, so we don't really have to get that deep into it, but just to let the um, the audience know, you had uh, several members of your immediate family, including your father, your brother, and a first cousin that were murdered in a pretty um, high-profile restaurant massacre in the fall of uh, 95. Yes. Very tragic. You know, you wouldn't wish that on your worst enemy. So without really getting too deep into that, how does that incident then propel you towards hooking up with the guys in Philadelphia? And then this is really kind of your 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 rise where you become a, a couple regime and you're running an entire faction of the Philadelphia crime family. Well, I mean, I had plans... Uh to move on and do a few different things to get away from the patriarchs before this happened at the 99. Uh, my father's death and what happened in the 99 wasn't a push for me to go to Philly because I was already uh, making introductions to New York. Um, it's unfortunate what happened to my father. When he got killed, we just, uh, the rest of my family, we got together, we combined everything. And uh, right after that, I started uh, looking out to uh, be made with another family. And I ended up going down to Philly. But my father's death really had nothing to do with that, Okay, to be honest with you. And, and you were, you were uh, introduced to Philly uh, by Ralph Natale, am I right? Yeah, one of my guys uh, was in prison with Ralph. And he kept telling me, go down and see Ralph. So I finally went down. I met Ralph. We got along well together. I had a few meetings with him, and then uh, I ended up meeting uh, Georgie Borghese in uh, Delaware, and uh, I had a meal with Georgie, and me and Georgie hit it off real well together. And shortly after that, I met Joey and the rest of the guys. So let's uh, let's give some context to that now for the audience. So Ralph Natale was a old-school 
uh, Philadelphia, New Jersey wise guy that had uh, been a right hand man to Angelo Bruno who was the longtime godfather of the Philadelphia Mafia. Uh, he was assassinated yep. in, in 1980. Uh, Natale had been his labor union fixer and had done a couple hits for him. Uh, went to prison, I believe, in 1979. Was locked up for about 15 and 16, uh, around 15, 16 years. While he was in prison, he linked up with Skinny Joey Merlino, uh, who's now the current boss of the Philadelphia mob, allegedly. And... Uh, Merlino and Natale decided to join forces and take on, which at the time was the current sitting administration in Philly, which was led by a Sicilian godfather named John Stampha. And yeah. with Natale, who represented the old school, representing uh, Joey, who represented the new school, and Joey and his whole crew, which were a bunch of uh, young, up-and-coming, handsome, capable um, very uh, charismatic group of, of young 30-something wise guys that wanted to take the power uh, for themselves, and they were able to do that. They took over the crime family in 94-ish, 95. Ralph Natale walks, yeah. out of, walks out of prison and becomes the boss of Philadelphia. Joey Merlino becomes his underboss. And Georgie, Georgie Borghese, who, who uh, was just referenced, um, becomes a uh, a consigliere for 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 Joey. But isn't this an unusual situation where they take over the family, but they're not even made guys yet? Merlino and them. Merlino was a made. Merlino was Stamfa Merlino, made them. Merlino was a made guy. Merlino was made by Stampa as a peace gesture. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. Then when Merlino when Merlino took over the family, he made all of his friends. I got you. And including he made uh. Natalie. So so. Yes, Bob did. meets with Ralph around this time period, and then Ralph hooks him up with Georgie Borghese, who's one of Joey's closest childhood friends, and then Georgie hooks him up with Joey. And then you're off and running at that point, right? Yeah, yeah. So talk That's about just about what happened. Talk about creating that crew uh, of your own in New England and, and bringing your own guys in and, and starting kind of your own mini family up there. Well, the Louis C. family was well known in Boston. When I went down and met Joey and Georgie, I already had my crew and my family set up. Uh, we had our money. We had our businesses going. Uh, the purpose of going down to Philadelphia was uh, to get made to legitimize. Uh, oh God, <laughs> I'm getting tired. I'm sorry, guy. Legitimize myself and my crew to be made guys, you know, and. When I went down there, um, I discussed that with Georgie and Joey, and they decided to take me in the family, uh, first as a soldier, then as a couple, and then I was going to stay with the family for a short time and break off and have my own family in Boston. That was the plan. What was the patriarchal factor in all that? Was it, you think that... Let's just say you don't get in, uh, indicted or arrested in, in, in uh, 2000 and you're not taken off the street and you, and you tried to do that. Would you have gotten blown back, blowback from, from the existing patriarchs? Oh, I was, but I, I wasn't worried about them. I was stronger than them at the time. I really wasn't worried about them, or Louis Monarchio and Rhode Island or any of them, to be honest with you. I had a strong crew. I had, I had power and money. And they were still in disarray. So can you be more specific about they, they weren't they weren't happy? They thought that... No, I said, I, I'm asking him if he would have done that in the year 2000 or 2001, 2002. Let's say Bobby doesn't go to prison. And, right. And he, like he just said, he was thinking about trying to break off from the Bruno Scarfo family yeah. and start his own family in Boston. Yeah. And I, then I asked him, right. was he worried about blowback yeah, from the Patriots? I got, I got it. And he wouldn't have been. And he's saying that, that right. it wouldn't have been an issue, that he was powerful enough to, to no. withstood that. No, got it. Got it. You better remember, I grew up with the Patriarca guys. The older guys were all friends of mine, you know? We were all working together. You got to understand, uh, it was strange in Boston to have two different factions up there, two different families. But you have to understand in New York, all these guys work together. All these different families and factions work together. You're there, there's nothing you can do. I'm here now, what are they going to do? Luckily for them, I got picked up in '99, and that kind of broke my family and my crew. But let's go, let's go back for a second, Bob. So you were made in '97, is that correct? '98, I was made. 
And Georgie, from what I, from my research, uh, Georgie and Joey came up to Boston to do this, to do the ceremony. Oh, I, I I'm not gonna. You can't get into that. I'm it's, not okay. Gonna, it's okay. It's all right. No, we're not. Yeah, we're not gonna talk about that. It's okay. You know, I just. From, but yeah. there were ceremonies in Boston. I'll put it that way. Okay, and then and we'll say that. And then you induct. Then you were allowed to then induct guys from your own crew, right? Uh you know. <laughs> okay, we don't have to talk about. We have okay. certain ways. <laughs> it's all right. Can I ask you both something? Is is it also was it important for Joey and Ralph to start bringing in guys like Bob because the ranks had been depleted because Scarfo, well, Scarfo and Stanfa and the killed war, everyone. <laughs> and, and then it was the Scarfo craziness that was going on in the eighties. Right, little Nicky Scarfo ran the Philadelphia crime family in the 1980s and just decimated the family with his lunacy. Yeah. And then there was a couple years right. of, of peace and then Joey and Ralph are fighting John Stanford for control of the family and the family erupts in, uh, into a war in 92, 93, 94. So there was a lot of tumult in, in Philadelphia. And the, some of the Stanford guys go to prison, yes, right? All, so you, all so the Stanford you need to replenish the yeah. ranks. Is that right, Bob? Yeah, understand the situation. In the early 90s, both Boston and Philadelphia were in their own loss. You know? Joey and I were kind of in the same situation. The only thing that separated Joey from me that he was already a made guy. You understand? Yep. So we both went through similar things. I went down there. Uh, I really liked the guys down there. They took me in. You know? Um, I think any boss you know, is looking for a potential, maybe in another area or another way to open an avenue to money or whatever Joey's reason was. But I think the most part of it was that uh, we just got along. He knew a lot of Boston guys. You know, Joey was up there. George used to come up all the time. And it seemed like a pretty good match at the time. So would it, you don't have to answer this if you don't want, but from my research, and I think this was caught on a wiretap, Joey was cellmates at some point with Bobby Carroza Sr. Uh, yeah. in prison. And I believe Bobby Carroza Jr. was one of your guys. Well, he was with uh, Sean. Okay. He wasn't. Uh, That's another one of your guys, Sean. He Bennett. was with someone in my crew. Okay. But he wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't with me. Okay, but the, the point is Joey was very connected. And, and, you know, the Joey, the skinny Joey crew, and this exists today in 2021, just like it did back in, 2001 and just like it did back in 1995 96 this is a fun loving crew i mean this is a crew that that is not uh you know it's the definition of of uh of the new millennium gangsters and uh, i call joey the instagram don you know someone that uh is a fashionista you know he'll he'll take pictures with his fans and like them on on social media so it's just a, a group that although they are uh, you know, in my opinion, in, in, in the opinion of law enforcement, they are a dangerous group, a group that uh, makes money um, illegally. But they're also a group that, that yeah. t has a lot of fun and, and likes being uh, kind of a part of the scene. And, and they're, they're not your, you know, uh, Angelo Brunos or Raymond Patriarchas of the past who every time they see a, a, a camera, they're going to snarl. Instead, Joey's going to smile and right. come up and shake the hand of the uh, the reporter and, and give him a, a, a nice soundbite for, for the daily newscast. Well, you, you see what it is. It's like anything else. You could see how, because I know that uh, you're pretty much an expert on a lot of this stuff, but how the mob in the last hundred years yeah. has actually evolved into this, mm -hmm. you know? And we're American. Uh, we follow our cultures. You understand? Yep. Everything changed in the late 80s and the 90s. Uh, guys like us came up. Uh, we liked the nice cars, the clothes, the women, uh, the action, the excitement. And it was just a different generation, you know? I, I, I don't believe that uh, Joey started out on the limelight that he got, but uh, it happened to him. You know, Philly uh, itself... It is a small family, and uh, Joey was an attention grabber. He was a headliner for them. So they kept on him, kept on him. For people that aren't from Philadelphia, because our audience is from around the country, if Joey Merlino was from New York, 
he would have the media profile of a John Gotti. But because he's not in New York, he is just a really, really, really big deal in Philadelphia. I can't overemphasize that. Like if you're a, exactly. if you're if you're someone exactly. that grows up in Philadelphia, you know about Joey Merlino the way you also know about uh Mike Schmidt or Dr. J or <laughs> right. you know, you know 1970s. I'm, I'm actually I'm, da- I'm dating I'm dating <laughs> myself. No, Let's no, say uh, Chase Otley <laughs> or uh Ben Simmons right. uh, <laughs> Eric Lindros. Uh you know, he was he's a he's a genuine pop culture icon in Philadelphia. And he's been like that for the last 30 plus years. Um, yeah, so yeah. yeah, your point is that he didn't necessarily go looking for that at the beginning of it, but it obviously found him. Oh, it found him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me listen. He's, he's very charismatic, Joey. He's well liked. And let me tell you something. Joey's a good person. I'm not talking about business and gangsters, but, you know, I used to love to be around Joey, hanging out with Joey, talking with Joey, drinking with Joey. You know, Joey's a good guy. You know, and I, I could see how, uh, you know, they grabbed off anything like that. And the thing about Joey is that, again, I think that people should understand that aren't from Philadelphia. Him and his crew um, are guys that have been best friends since literally kindergarten these guys grew up in the sandbox together in the 70s and early 80s uh and their loyalty is more to each other than to la cosa nostra i would say um they i I would agree with that 100 percent. and that's why none of them have turned on each other in an era where everybody's turning on everybody and you know joey is someone that i know jokes with people um that he has the devil on his shoulder looking after him because this yeah. guy's luck is uncanny. Uh, he's a, um, averted about two dozen assassination attempts. Uh, he's been in court facing murders, facing uh, life in prison, um, slips out of it all. And it's 2021 yeah. and he's living down in Boca Raton and he's playing golf every day. And uh, he's, he's, he's oh, sunbathing and, and driving around in a, uh, a Rolls Royce Bentley and um, yeah. just being Joey. But he, and, he has done significant time though in his life, hasn't he? He did. So he did two or three, oh, he, did two or, he did two or three years in the eighties. That's where he met Ralph Natale. Uh, and then he did uh, 11 to 12 years yeah. uh, between 99 and, and 2011. Yeah, I mean, it's the, nothing. Yeah, because yeah. I, I, Joey and I got picked up on the same day. In 99. Uh, in 99. I got more time than all of them. Let's, let's talk, uh, let's, let's, in 99. In 99, yes. Uh, Bob, let's talk about uh, the case that you got caught up in, because I, I find it interesting because, frankly, uh, and I'm not saying, uh, by no means am I saying that, that you were someone that was, quote, unquote, innocent of, of being a mob guy. You obviously were a mob guy. But the case that you actually yeah. went down on, in, in my opinion, as a, someone who has a law degree, and it, it kind of it reeks of entrapment. <laughs> uh, you got nailed in a drug case, and I think anybody that, that studied uh, you know, the history of Bob Luis and the mob would have known that, that Bob and his guys weren't drug guys. But Joey Merlino mm-hmm. had a guy that was working for him by the name of Ron Previty, uh, who uh, became kind of a pseudo capo on uh, the Philadelphia mob was a former police officer who had worked for John Stampha when Merlino was at war with Stampha. Uh, when, when, when Stampha went to prison, you know, uh, miraculously, or maybe not so miraculously, Ron Previty, despite the fact that he was doing all this stuff with John Stampha, didn't go to prison because the FBI wanted him out on the street making cases against Joey. And right. he starts trying to cut into you up in Boston and kind of almost muscle you into doing drug deals. And you're like, I don't do drug deals. And he's like, but we're asking you to do a drug deal. So it was kind of like after you told them a bunch of times that you didn't want to do it, they kind of pressured you into putting together a drug deal that you eventually got busted for. Well, what happened? Um, Johnny had come to me and told me he had a guy up in Boston. Ronnie Previty had somebody with him that was in Boston. He finally lived in Philly and he was up there and, some guys were bothering him, and so I met with uh, this Mike McGowan, I called Irish Mike, and uh, Ronnie, uh, up in Boston, downtown, and uh, I sat with him, I said, listen, if there's any problems, just tell them you're with the Luisi family, and they'll leave you alone. 
And that's how I left off on Mike, but they kept pushing and pushing. Uh, I was at a wedding, uh, I'm sorry, Jolene Gandy, who was the underboss of the family at the time, the Philadelphia family, <clears throat> Bruno Scoffel family, had a party in Center City, and uh, Ronnie was there sitting at my table, and he came up to me with this drug thing. And I told him, I said, I don't sell drugs, Ronnie, get out of here with that nonsense, you know? But he kept pushing, and he kept pushing, and uh, kept pushing Joey, and uh, Joey kept pushing me, and uh, we ended up doing the drug deal with an FBI agent. Uh, I knew right off the bat there was something wrong. Why would they come up to Boston? They're right uh, next to New York. Why are they coming up there looking for these drugs? And we felt that uh, either Ronnie or Mike were informants. But I couldn't prove it at the time. And you can't go to a boss if you don't have proof. So I had to make a decision to either go through with it or maybe have a problem over it. So I ended up uh, going through with it, and uh, we all got pinched. And that's basically what happened. Did you get brought into the racketeering case, though, that came down a year later? No, no. You only did time on the on the case from 99, the drug case? Yeah, that's what okay. I did, yeah. But Joey beat those charges. He beat those charges. I didn't. Right. Okay. <laughs> you know, my history in Boston and the Luisi family, there's no jury up here that is going to let me go home, my friend. <laughs> Entrapment and all, because I was entrapped. Uh, we proved that. I won an appeal on it. I ended up going back to court. But uh, there wasn't any jury up here that was going to let me go home. So I wasn't loved in Philly like Joey was. Like Joey was loved in Philly. I didn't have that love up here, believe me. But, God, I'm sorry, stuff. I was just going to ask about Ron. Is it Previty? Is that Previty, how you pronounce yeah. it? He was made by Stanfa. Yep. Which is, which is interesting because there's this idea like, oh, Stanfa was this old school Sicilian boss because he was from Sicilia. But... You're not a guy who's a cop is automatically disqualified from, from getting their button, right? So, like, listen, it, I don't even know how this guy got a button. I don't know what Stanford was doing. That's what I mean. You know? <laughs> and then Joey made him a cop. Joey made him a capo. Do you know why? Because he, he was bringing Joey money that the FBI was giving him. <laughs> right. Joey's, well, never, seen, like Joey's never seen an envelope he doesn't uh, accept or love. <laughs> I'm at the party with uh, Ronnie. This is that same night he asked me about the drugs. And I said to him, you're a couple, Ronnie, where's your guys? You met my guys, you know the guys I got. Where were your guys, I told Where's your soldiers on there? I used to break Ronnie's balls. Ronnie didn't like me. When uh, uh, I was in a book about him, uh, they didn't write well about me, but I understood why, because of what I did to him. Any shot I got at Ronnie, I used to take. You know, his appearance, his actions, the way he talked—I I just didn't like him, and he knew that. He knew that, and he couldn't get to me, and I won't sell him the drugs until I felt I had to. If you understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So, you know, why don't we talk about you know the transformation and uh, when you kind of had your you know for all you know for lack of a better term, but when you had your kind of come to Jesus moment and realized that. Um, you wanted to kind of turn things around and, and, and you found God. Well, something spiritual happened to me in uh, 98. It was a spiritual encounter with something evil. And it lasted about uh, uh, eight hours. At that time, my mother opened the church in 1980 in East Boston, uh, non-denominational church. And uh, I remember calling her and the pastor and everybody to come over. And uh, that night I realized that there is Jesus and there was a devil, you know, and my eyes were open. And uh, from that time forward, I started seeking um, to see why this thing happened to me, you know. And uh, it led me to church. It led me to my mother's church. I became a born-again Christian while I was on the street and a boss. And, uh, but, uh, you got to remember when I was on the street, I, I still had to do what I had to do. You know, I had my family, my guys in, uh, when I got arrested in uh, 99, I was really able to 
you know, get deeper into my faith and my readings. And while I was in prison, I got a degree in theology. I wrote a book on uh, creationism. Uh, I uh, republished the book recently, um, God's Plan Revealed by Robert Louis. It's up on Amazon. And, uh, you know, it, it just turned my life around. Uh, you know, you're a diehard gangster. <laughs> you believe in what you're doing. And then this thing hit me like a brick wall. And, uh, you know, uh, my mother used to tell me, Bobby, we used to pray every day in the church that you would see your sins. I guess I saw them, you know. And uh, it was a little rough. You know, at least Bob got knocked down on the road to the master by Jesus. I had to get visited by Satan. But, hey, it woke me up, you know. But in any case, uh, yeah, it turned my life around. And uh, I really, uh, I didn't want my own family anymore after that. I was happy being with Philly. And uh, in a way, I just wanted it to end. And praise God, in 99, I got picked up. And I went to prison. And that was the end of it for me, you know. And there there were no uh, hard feelings from the, the wise guys in Philly that you made this decision to choose a different path? Oh, of course there was. <laughs> of course, you know. But listen, that's over 20 years ago. I'm up here. I'm, I'm living in Boston. Everything is good. I got nothing to do with the mob. You know, God bless my friends. I still pray for them. The guys up here, the guys down in Philly, but I got nothing to do with the mob anymore. Start, you know. Do you have a, a relationship with Michael Francis at all? I mean, he, he had a similar conversion. I know we've had him as a guest on before. Have you ever talked to him about their similarities, life as wise guys, and then becoming and uh, people da- of and faith? Having, and having dads that were. Right, I can't, right. Well, uh, Mike and I did a show together, Comedy Central, the president show. Uh, there was me. Mike, there was uh, Frank DiMatteo, and we did a little skit with uh, the fake President Trump. I don't know if you ever seen him, but you got to watch it. It's great. <laughs> did, did you know that's not? Yeah. He told me about it. I oh, you got to see this. <laughs> oh, no, you got to watch this. It's great. They had, like a Trump, yeah. they had like a whole show that was like with a Trump impersonator playing Trump for the whole show. Oh, I didn't know those yeah. guys were on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we ended up doing a, a, a four-minute segment, I think four or five minutes. Actually, Tony was there, you know, Paulie Walnuts from The Sopranos. Tony Sirico, yeah. He was on the set that day. Yeah, Tony Sirico, yeah, he was on. Uh, but I don't know, for some reason, they needed time to cut his part out. Uh, but I had met Tony there. And, uh, you know, we were shooting that day. I really didn't have time to talk to Mike about all of that. But we're friends, you know, we text each other for Christmas and Merry Christmas and all that, you know. Bob, did you get a chance... Um... You were locked up for 10 years? Oh, I did 14. 14 years. So in, the, in those 14 years, did you get a chance to watch The Sopranos? Yeah, actually, it was on a and I think. Right. I did, think they had put it on a Yeah, they did. Did you and like I it? I watched it on a Did you enjoy it? I enjoyed it because it kind of felt like home. Uh, how could I explain it? I had the same situation with my family. I had the blonde wife, the older daughter, the son, you know? Mm-hmm. It just felt really familiar to me, that show. Are there, uh, you know, I didn't buy all the violence and everything on it, but it, I thought it was pretty good. Did you buy the last... If we're going to get real nitpicky, and I, I'm going to digress for a second, but one of my... Just being a uh, someone who knows so much about the mob or knows about organized crime, you know, you watch movies or television and you see things that happen. You're like, that that would never happen in real life. <laughs> like in that, in the final season when, when New Jersey's going to war with New York, that would never happen. Yeah. <laughs> like it wouldn't no, last long. That's yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah. And not only did Are they go to, not only did they go to war with New York, they won. <laughs> they killed yeah. the boss. Well, listen. Yeah. Well, that was kind of an order from that would never happen. Right. But that was kind of an order from the inner circle in the family, you know, which was a little crazy. But you know, it's a TV show. They're gonna have that action. But actually, by that time, the Cavalcanti family, who they're really supposed to be, right. was pretty much the funk. Right. You know? Because I was with a lot of those guys. I mean, unless you buy into the idea that the only reason why it worked was because there were insurgents within the Lupertazzi family who were, like, co-signing that, right? So that, like, 
so what really wasn't like a, a one-to-one war you know what i mean like because yeah. look at corleone in sicily right. they, they took over everything they were a small like like kind of village mafia clan and they took over all of sicily because they conspired from within with you know what, the leadership the, of other of other fam bit larger families what's your favorite boston crime movie bob my favorite yeah that's a good question I, I, you know friends of eddie coyle is probably my favorite old school one and then my my favorite new school yeah. one is probably i mean as much as i love the departed I, the town i, I love just, the i town. love the town i love the town too underrated oh, you know like I, I did too that that was a great movie you know that yeah that's probably at the top up there take take you know taking down the Cathedral of Boston, <laughs> priceless. Let, let, let me ask you, Bob. I know we were we were talking about faith and could have ended on a, a positive note here, but if I can bring up the gangster stuff again. So you're speaking of Charlestown and the town, I know that was you know part of a neighborhood that you were familiar with. Did you know in the '90s any of the the, the bank robber guys? What was it like Anthony the O'Shea, Shea, the Shea brothers? Like what they call them, the No Name Gang or something like that? Did you know those guys? Oh no, I knew the Shea brothers. I knew the Shea brothers, Sheriff. I knew I knew a lot of those guys. Uh, I had, uh, I'm not going to say their names, but the brothers were with me over there. I made a lot of money in Charlestown. Wow. You know, but uh, Anthony Shea, I didn't know, but I knew his brothers well. They were good people, you know, and uh, good family. That, that's um, a story that, that not enough people know. I think that's a really fascinating case study that doesn't get enough publicity. The Shea, those, yeah. those guys from Charlestown. Uh, Bob did. Um, oh, the Shea brothers? Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember where you were when you heard uh, Whitey Bulger was killed? You know something? I don't know. I really don't. Was it something that surprised you? Did it, did it shock you? It was like three years ago. Did it shock you? Listen, I, I don't want to sound crude. I mean, but I could, I could have cared less. You know what I'm saying, Bo? Yeah. No, that's perfect. I, I love that answer. Well, <laughs> An we've, we've interviewed Anthony Erlota on our show. We, we'd like to have him back. For, for our listeners, go back and listen to the episode we did with him. Yeah. And when Scott asked him the same question, his, his response was the, was the no, best. No, he says, he says, I get up and I look at a text and it says, uh, Whitey Boulder was killed. And I said, why the fuck do I give a shit yeah, about he's, that? Yeah, he's who gives a fuck? <laughs> who gives a fuck? <laughs> <laughs> and it was one of Anthony's guys that did it, allegedly. <laughs> listen, you know, I, you know, it's funny. I was talking to Anthony today about you, Scott. But, you know, let me ask a question. Yeah. Do you really think Wyatt Earp was as bad as he was? No, it's all myth. It's mythology. Let's go back to yeah, it's mythology. Oh, there we go. Then. That's the same thing with Whitey Bulger, my yep. friend. Yep. I got each. Yep. Well, this was this was amazing, Robert Luisi. We just can't thank you enough for uh, coming on board with us and sharing your insight, sharing your knowledge. This was one of my all-time favorite episodes. One of my all-time favorite interviews. And we we, oh, great. We, that, we so. want to have you on uh, as many times as you want to come back and and talk about uh, your life, talk about current events, talk uh, talk about stuff that you're doing. So let everyone uh, now know uh, where they can uh, buy some of your books and and, and watch you on YouTube and and uh, you know consume more of the brand of of uh, Bob Luisi. All right. Well, my show on YouTube is the Bobby Luisi Show. Um, also, I just like I said, I just republished the book. Uh, uh, God's Plan Revealed by Robert Luisi on Amazon. You can get that up there. It's about creation. It's a great book. Uh, in the future, uh, we're working on a book right now about the 90 mob laws in my life story. So uh, that'll be coming out soon. And I'll keep you informed, Scott, and let you know when that's released. Hopefully, I'll be back on the show with that pretty soon yeah please do like i said the door is always open you can come even if you have nothing to sell or or to pitch or you do always just come on and 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 join us and join the conversation and i know that our audience is going to love uh love what you bring to the table and hopefully they'll uh reciprocate you know not just loving you but they'll purchase some of your <laughs> some of your products and and give you uh some viewership or listenership for your podcast and your television show or your online uh online show i know they would enjoy the show if they started watching you know, but uh, you got anything else you want to share with us or you want me to uh, take us out? No, take us out. That's good. I thought we did good. You know, that was enjoyable. Thank you. Before we sign off, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Just don't forget to show us some love on, on the socials. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, we're going to be coming at you every week now. We want to thank our parents, our, our broadcast parental units, the StartupNation.com people, the people at WJR, people at Cumulus, people at uh, Simplecast, 
They've all been great to us, and, and we appreciate all the love and just want to give people great content. And uh, this was uh, right in that uh, sweet spot. Uh, Boston Bob Luisi, you did it all. You said it all. Just you lived, you lived an amazing life, and I know you, your next chapter is going to be just as uh, amazing and as prosperous as, as ever because you deserve it. And, again, you're always welcome back here on the OG. We love having you. We love telling stories. We love giving people the, the 411, the raw, unadulterated truth when it comes to underworld uh, activity and, and world in the mob. I'm Scott Bernstein for Jimmy Bucciolato, and uh, we'll see you next week. We're out.